Welcome to episode 36 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Berlioz and Mendelssohn. Hello. Hello. My name's Chris Bland. And my name's Kelly Harlock. You're listening to episode 36 of That Classical Podcast. Welcome, everybody. This time, we're going to be talking about two composers who, you know, sometimes can divide opinions, mm-hmm. not least amongst each other. Yeah. And that is Hector Berlioz and Felix Mendelssohn. Mm-hmm. So we're going to dive straight in. And Kelly, I believe you're going to start us off. Yes, indeed. If you've ever listened to the show before, guys, uh, you'll know that it's now time for... The 60-second show. That's right, the 60-second show. So all that means is that we take a composer's life. So I'm going to take Hector Berlioz's life and condense it down into a minute. I'm going to try my best. He was a bit of a weirdo, so it's a challenge. (laughs) With all that being said, Kelly, are you ready? Yes. Steady? Yep. Go! Hector Berlioz was born December 1803 in southeast France. It was actually quite crap at music, played a bit on the flute and guitar, but wasn't very good and never mastered an instrument. However, age 12, <laughs> fell in love with his 18 year old neighbour and realised heartache and passion inspired him to compose. Age 17, moved to Paris, enrolled in the School of Medicine, hated it, but his dad bribed him to continue with loads of money. Graduated in 1824, then sacked it in, started composing by himself, then two years later went to music school, started comp- composition, started going to Shakespeare plays, loved a bit of Shazza, fell in love with actress Harriet Smithson, got obsessed for several years. Uh, at first, she was like, ew, please leave. Then she was like, all right. Wrote Sound Funny Fantastique in 1830, moved to Rome to study music for two years slight detour when he tried to murder some people but didn't Uh, went back to Rome and wrote Harold on Italy and other stuff 1832 back to Paris married Harriet 1803 disaster he was also a paid music critic hated everything except Beethoven kept writing operas but people were like no thanks struggled for money toured Europe started romancing uh, singer Marie Ressio divorced Hazard married Marie kept writing operas people hated and after the failure of La Troyenne in Germany in 1863 he wrote no more music everyone died he fell into a depression then he literally fell on some rocks in 1868 and died a few months later in March 1868 Nine. Oh, thank you. Dramatic. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. His life seems to be in a series of, nah, I don't like it. Give me money. Okay, I'll keep being a doctor. Or like, nah, I don't like this. Gonna murder you. Nah, I don't I like it. I think he was quite unhinged. I, I, you know, I don't know how to say it in a nice way, but he <laughs> right, was okay. just a bit of a mental person. And um, <laughs> okay. right, which reminds me, so I mentioned that he wanted to murder people in that. Did you? Yeah. Which yeah. You, you know already. I do know. Because in, in our guys in our Patreon episode, that's for our patrons only. Um, we mentioned that uh, Berli- we did played a piece by Berlioz, and Chris talked about. Just to recap, really quickly. Basically, he was engaged to marry this girl called Camille Playel, who was like heir to a piano fortune because mm. um, of the Playel pianos. And she broke off the engagement. And Berlioz was like, oh, no. And then after he moved to Italy to study music, he was like, I don't even want to do this anymore. I want to murder Camille and her mum. So he organised, I mean, Chris, you probably know more about us than I do, but he basically organised to dress up as a woman and sneak in their house and shoot them both and yeah. or poison them. Yeah. But then he, like, a various things happened, like, on the way. And he was like, nah, you know what? I actually, I probs won't murder them, actually. Um, I probably should just write some more music. Yeah, and if you want to hear the full banal reason why he decided not to murder them, uh, why not become a patron of us on Patreon? Uh, so our Patreon exclusive episode contains the full story. Sell, sell, sell. That's <laughs> us. Um, but yeah, and I also mentioned he was a music critic, right? And yeah. I found out what his pet peeves were. Because you know I said he basically hated everything except Beethoven. Amazing. I mean, like what fair, Beethoven's pretty great. Yeah. He hated, weirdly, he hated musical pedants, which <laughs> makes me laugh because he definitely <laughs> must definitely have been one. one. Right, I think okay. you probably have to be one if you're a composer. I don't know. Huh. Um, and he hated coloratura writing and singing. And okay. that's just like, um, you know, like a high soprano yeah, going like, like, oh, 
are like going up Flashing and down and up and down. Yeah, exactly. And fair enough, because I think quite a few people find that annoying. No offence to them. Uh, he hated viola players who were merely incompetent violinists. <laughs> Which is rude. Uh, hashtag every rude. viola player ever. Stop it. Don't offend them. Um, he hated Sorry, we love you, viola. Inane libretti, which is basically every opera. Every opera yeah, ever. Yeah, so obviously, that's what I mean. He hated everything. <laughs> he hated very normal things. And finally, he hated Baroque counterpoint. So he hated Ooh. everything that was Baroque. Which upsets now, me greatly. Yeah, yeah that's very interesting because oh, uh, so stop I'll go and talk it. about it a bit later. But Men- yeah. Mendelssohn and Berlioz, I think they personally didn't have any problem, but they really disliked each other's music. So basically, Mendelssohn was all about being pedantic and sticking to musical right. rules. <laughs> right. He loved Baroque counterpoint. Right. I'll go and <laughs> okay. talk about all of this. So but... this is the perfect storm, basically, yeah. is what you're telling me. And then the last thing I'll say is that he loved opera. Okay, he loved a bit of opera. Uh, he kept writing it, but everyone was like, please stop. They're really bad. Like, no one, you know what, Hector? No one's coming to see you. This is quite stop a theme. It. And because I think we mentioned this um, when we talked about Schubert, maybe, is that he kept writing operas and everyone was like, please yeah. don't. Like, Just, Schubert, could you buddy, not, stop. Please. But, you know, and this is the same thing. Who do they and, always want to write operas all the time? Well, and no one's I letting think them. Back in the day, it was like to write a successful opera, you would be like the bee's knees. Sure. You'd be like the talk yeah, of the town yeah, if yeah, your opera yeah. was like really successful. But his got shut down after like one day like all the time seriously like the worst film ever released um and like but the thing is you know you're like oh no poor guy but then you find out that his um version of like le troyen which was i guess about like the trojans and Mm. things like that it was five hours long and no one agreed to put it on yeah yeah. so they made him like put it into two halves but even they were just like oh too much and this brings me (laughs) to what i want to just say as just a little um you know preface uh, to the show. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't wake up of a morning and say, you know what I really fancy is some Hector Berlioz today. Controversial. Okay. <laughs> but I'm also of the of the spirit that you can always find something that you like in a composer's backlog. Yeah. And you really, really can. Like, even if, like, I found this with Packle Bell as well. You know, he, he wrote, canon in D mm. and then you wrote a thousand million things for the organ and I was like well this is rubbish isn't it I don't yeah, want to hear organ yeah. music all the time but then I found his vespers and it's like you know what there's always something it's always so a this diamond is, in the rough this is a diamond in the rough so I found two diamonds in the rough plural for you today and here they are diamonds plural in the rough surely <laughs> shut up so the first piece I'm going to talk about today is Symphonie Fantastique. What does that mean? Now, listen, there are movements of this that I have to hear every day for various reasons, job reasons. Um, (laughs) And I despise them with all my heart. Uh, And I just want to say that as we go on. However, like I said, like I said, there are things to find that are nice. And the story behind this piece is is really good. And I had to tell you what it is. And there's actually some really nice moments in it. Good. But, you know... That's all. I just wanted to say that. So no. I'm really sorry. So when we were planning this episode, it was like, all right, yeah, mate, do you want to do Berlioz? And Kelly was like, yeah, yeah, sure, that'd be great. Oh, no, my heart sank. My heart, my heart sank when you when Come on, you let's, keep, like, let's keep it going. Let's, let's find okay, those diamonds no, in the rough. We're going to find them. They're here. So look, Berlioz 
weirdo. That's the headline of the day, okay? <laughs> and when he was 25, he developed this like bizarre nervous condition where he was tormented by musical ideas, like what? whipping him up into a frenzy <laughs> and then just going and leaving him bereft, like wow. a one-night stand with a semi-breathe. I don't know. <laughs> um, and here's like something that he wrote to his friend saying, so many musical ideas are seething within me. Must my destiny be engulfed by this overwhelming passion? This imaginary world has become a real malady. God, yeah, I mean, having a mare, wasn't he? Just dramatic. having a mare. And then suddenly, in March in 1830, this like really like this kind of massive, horrific, tormenting uh, writer's block just stopped and everything came tumbling out. And he okay. birthed Symphonie Fantastique <laughs> in, in six weeks. It, yeah. That's pretty good. So, yeah. And in large part, or at least in some part, it may have been due to the fact he was taking a whole load of opium at the time. All right. Um, uh, yeah, just FYI. FYI. Wait, did the opium make him stop having all the crazy thoughts? Or start? I don't. I don't know, but I think it definitely contributed. I mean, you might. I'll tell you what the story of it is, and then maybe you might. You might realize. Right, but anyway, so one part of it was the opium, and then the other <laughs> part um, was that it was inspired by a Shakespearean Irish actress named Harriet Smithson, who I mentioned in my sixty yeah. seconds who he saw in a production of Hamlet and was like, you're the one, hubba, all right? Hubba. Which, to be fair, is how I feel about, like, most male protagonists in BBC <laughs> costume dramas. So, like, I can I can feel that, you know, like, you it's him, sure. I, that's sure. it. Do you know sure. what I mean? But no, um, Symphony Fantastique is basically a thinly veiled autobiographical story about Ooh. his love for Harriet and his obsession with her wow. when when they met. Because she was like, please get away from me <laughs> for like years and years and years. Like for eight years or something. Oh no, for oh, like three years I think gosh, it was. That sounds unpleasant. And then she just gave in, you know. Dedication. That's all it takes. No. <laughs> to find the one. No means no. Yeah, <laughs> no means no, exactly. But the, so look, in the opening movement, so this is how it's autobiographical, right? The opening movement, he sees the woman of his dreams, okay? Right. And then she begins to haunt his imagination yeah? yeah then in the next movement he sees her at a party and he's like oh my god uh, which i can also understand like you know sure. you, you yeah. see yeah. something you fancy at a party and it's just like great and anxiety inducing <laughs> pleasure it's great um anyway so then he imagines her on a stroll in the countryside in in the third movement so this is all sort of normal yeah, yeah. right and then we get to movement four in which he poisons himself with opium oh but it doesn't kill him oh. it just induces a horrific vision where he thinks he's murdered harriet oh. and is condemned to condemned to death and then witnesses his own execution right and then in movement <laughs> five he's gone down to hell and he's surrounded by demons the woman he loves is nothing but a strumpet running around making fun of everything wow. and like and everything means nothing if I in <laughs> no, but it's like all meaningless. Um, I mean, that took a real turn. So it's like, ooh, 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 I fancy you. I've seen you, you know at a party. I mean? No, I <laughs> now we're in hell. Opium, don't take it. <laughs> is what I would say about that. Um, but so that is the main storyline. So of course, I chose the opium movement because uh, why wouldn't you? It's actually quite underplayed. Like, I never really hear it sure. on the radio or anything, and it's actually just quite exciting. So here is. Berlioz witnessing his own execution, about to be joined by some devils. Here we go.
mean, look, essentially the whole of Symphonie Fantastique is like a terrible cheese nightmare, isn't it? You know how they if say you the get... the cheese was a massive <laughs> lump of opium, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why we get cheese nightmares, but with opium cheese. But yeah, what did you think? Uh, well, it's not every day that you get to write about your own execution, so no. that's pretty yeah. exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do like Berlioz. I don't think his music is necessarily the most subtle all the time. No, no, it's not. But I do, I do like Symphony of Fantastique. I mean, it's a good piece. Like, it mm. does a thing. It's music. <laughs> it does and a whole it's good. thing. It's also quite scary that it sort of foreshadowed his wanting to murder someone he actually mm. loved as well. Because he and thinks having he's, loads of opium. And having loads of opium. But yeah, no, you know what? It's good. And if you want, like, a good, solid symphony, this is... This is a nice one. Also, it has just, it's just an interesting story behind it as well. Yeah, it's not for sure, bo- for it's sure. certainly not boring, and it does. Yeah. Loads of people think this this is a really well known symphony, and it's it's, oh, yeah, it's no, really well loved. I think we're probably the in the minority and... opinion that I we're not we so are, hot on yeah. it. Like lots of people really really love Berlioz, and specifically this piece uh, yeah. gets played all the time in concerts. Yeah, people yeah. really love it. Um, and if you don't, the thing is with me, I'm a bit. I like a, a sort of surprising, like you know, something that, that is a bit unexpected in music and this isn't that you know what i mean right, this okay. this is just very safe it's interesting but he it's goes safe. to hell and it, yeah. watches <laughs> his own death oh, that's a bit predictable <laughs> i don't know but anyway look it is really good so do go and listen to the rest of it the movement that's yeah the movement that's, that's played all the time that i hear is unbell is the second one which is like the one at the party and that's a really well-known one as well um and it's it's all it's all really lovely so go and check it out that classical Podcast. Next, it's Romeo and Juliet, or <gasps> Romeo et Juliette, uh, if you're very French uh, about in it. France. Uh, yes, Berlioz wrote this uh, in 1839 because you know how I said he. So he went to see Harriet in Shakespeare, and that's mm. when he fell in love with her. He loved a bit of Shakespeare. He loved cool. a slice of iambic pentameter, did Hector. Um, and um, in, yeah, in 1839, he wrote this based on Romeo and Juliet. Lovely. And here's another silly quote, which I found that he said, which I enjoyed. He said, To witness that passion as swift as thought, burning as lava, radiantly pure as an angel's glance. <laughs> um, that was his description. God. I know. Could you imagine getting a text from him today? He's such a weird dude. The righteous angelic light shone down on the blessed chair on the way to Sainsbury <laughs> on the bus. Like I just, he would be so I, annoying. I, I've, I understand we're like a couple of hundred years removed from him, it's but lot, I still feel it? very it's uncomfortable <laughs> about being anywhere near Berlioz. Deeply Berlin's. uncomfortable, yeah. yeah, no, me too. Getting bad vibes. Um, and interestingly, remember the story, in fact, I think it was again in our, our Patreon episode, so I'm sorry, um, but Paganini refused to take on one of Berlioz's parts that he wrote for uh, him yeah. in Harold and Italy, wasn't it? Yeah. So basically, long story short, Berlioz wrote this part for Paganini and then Paganini saw it and was like, this is so easy. I can't show off to anyone playing <laughs> I this. I am insulted. I'm not going to play it, you know, naff off. And so then uh, Berlioz gave it to another violinist and then Paganini came to see the performance and knelt down in front of Berlioz, took his, like, kissed his hand and was like, this is amazing. <laughs> You've written the most wonderful thing in the world. And then just gave him 20,000 francs. Yeah. Yeah. Just because he liked it. Just because he was very rich. He was just a rich yeah. man. And like Oprah. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> Paganini like Oprah in so many ways. That's it. So basically, these 20,000 francs, like Berlioz paid off loads of debts and stuff, but he also 
basically didn't have to worry about anything. So sat down and wrote Romeo and Juliet because cool. it was like a passion cool. project that he right. finally could actually work on and focus on, which is cool. And also, weird, the version of Romeo and Juliet that uh, Berlioz saw and, and based his version on, mm. uh, Juliet woke up. So, you know, Romeo and Juliet. I do. So Romeo thinks Juliet is dead she's because she's taken... A po- no, she well, she's taken something that makes her sleep and seem dead. Yeah. And then Romeo walks in and drinks poison. Oh, no! Right? Yeah, sorry. Spoiler alert. But in this version, he saw Juliet wakes up before Romeo dies. So they have this really <laughs> awkward moment where they're like, oh, oh no, oh, I wasn't... Uh, oh, did you... Oh, oh no, because oh, no, I you thought, thought you... Uh, oh. I thought you were... Right, oh. and then they died. So, um, <laughs> which I find hilarious, and I can't find any information on it that isn't on, like, you, like essay websites. Um, so you can research that in your own time, but I just thought that was quite fascinating. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're going to listen to Hector's favourite movement, which also happens to be my favourite movement, mm-hmm. funnily enough. Scène d'amour, okay? So, like, the love scene. So... AKA Tis the Nightingale and Not the Lark, you know, et cetera. Like that point in the play where oh, right. they've okay, yeah, just yeah, been yeah. together or they got are it, together. Got it, got it, got it, got it. So please join me now uh, imagining a topless Leonardo DiCaprio in his prime <laughs> as we listen to Send Amour from Romeo and Juliet. interesting thing about that is that it's a symphony so Berlioz called that a dramatic symphony not a fantastic Mm. symphony but a (laughs) dramatic symphony and um it also features soloists and choruses which you don't like so you know he called it a symphony but it's sort of not he was well i mean that's probably him loving beethoven right and beethoven using choruses in his symphonies okay yeah i guess Mm. so and yeah and and but it's not it wasn't anyway it wasn't like a common form of of symphony um and i don't know i just thought that was interesting because he is sort of a half self-taught composer Mm. and i just like the fact that maybe he was really more more concerned with making a really great piece of art that rather than mm, making something mm. that really you know stayed inside the symphony box um, <laughs> and all these musical forms, so I just thought that was quite interesting. But that was Romeo and Juliet, and the rest of it's really nice as well. Um, what else can you listen to if you want a bit of Berlioz? What else can we listen to Kelly? in your life? Um, he did do so. Look. As we know, he wrote a lot of operas. They are not for me. They're not there. They're just not for me. And I went through so many of them to try and to try and get stuff for today. So he did the damnation of um, Faust. Faust. Yeah. And there are moments. There are moments in that. Do you know what, lads? It's it's just quite intense. It's quite intense. Not for you. Not for me. Not for you. But it, you know, worth a look. He also has a really cool requiem, which is his favourite thing that he ever wrote, mm. and. There's, again, lovely points in that, but it doesn't, 
it doesn't move me, I guess, like other requiems do. Again, sorry, I don't want to diss him. No, that's fine. It's fine. Um, but again, it's worth checking out because just he did write a lot of, you know, variety of stuff. Also, Harold on Italy, that, that is, that's great. you know, a great, great piece from him. And his Christmas stuff, L'Enfance du Christ, that we played in our Christmas episode, you know. And if you remember from our Woodwind episode, he was the first composer ever to write for the saxophone. So he was, yeah. Um, and what again, I tried to find the piece that he wrote for it and I just didn't really like oh, no. it. But hey, look, you might really, really love it. So please go and look at that. I think it's called uh, Chant Sacré like sacred song that was the first piece that he wrote for the saxophone so have a look at that and you know what enjoy and prove me wrong <laughs> and just send me a hate mail about how much you love Berlioz I just you know if you really love him then please tell me and tell me what I should listen to this time you know but anyway there he is this episode of that classical podcast is brought to you by Encoder that's N-K-O-D-A what Right, real talk. That took us about five minutes to get down, which is an absolute record for us. It usually takes us about an hour to record our intros from scratch. But we were using Encoder, which is a sheet music subscription app we've been obsessed with all week. In fact, we thought it was as easy to use as ABC. And as soon as you sign up, you immediately get access to more music than you could ever imagine. In fact, there are 110,000 titles already available across Encoder, which means over 30 million pages of music, which is just insane. And it's everything from musicals to pop to every imaginable classical piece. And we've even got a little playlist going on there of the pieces we've mentioned on the show that you can even have a crack at yourself. And Encoder is for everyone, whether you're a music teacher and you want to start using it with your students, you can share music instantly together and you can even annotate it on there with all your personal markings. What about if you're learning an instrument for the first time and you need some inspiration? Encoder has everything from beginner versions of your favourite pieces through to some hardcore abstract contemporary classical pieces if you want to give those a go later. And even if you're not a musician yourself, you can gift it to someone else. A subscription to Encoder is the perfect gift for your muso friend. And Christmas is coming. But don't just take our word for it. Encoder comes recommended by classical big dogs like Sir Simon Rattle and Joyce DiDonato. And the good news is it's available across all platforms. So whether you're on iOS or on Android, you're all good to go. And if you're a fan of that classical podcast, you can get a free trial to this amazing service. Just go to www.encoder.com forward slash that classical to sign up now. That's www.nkoda.com forward slash that classical for your free trial. Now I'm going to talk about a composer that I feel slightly more positively about than I think okay. you do about Berlioz. Yeah, excellent. And that, of course, is Felix Mendelssohn. So I'm calling him Felix, German, so... I know, I was going to make fun of you, but you've got there before I can. Okay. (laughs) I will variously say Felix or Felix. Right. It's spelled like that. You know, you've seen the name before. You know what it is. Mm -hmm. However, before I start talking about any of his pieces, it is time, of course, for the dreaded 60-second show. It is. Are you ready, my friend? Oh, I am so ready. Okay. Three, two, and a one, go. 
Felix Mendelssohn, born 1809, died 1847. As a kid, his older sister Fanny, who was also a composer, was much better at the piano, but oh no, women aren't allowed to be successful. So when Felix dedicated himself to music, his parents were like, yeah, okay, we support this one. So he studied piano and composition, he's very into Baroque music, and composed a lot from his early age, e.g. some of his pieces that are still known to this day, like his string octet, he wrote at the age of 16. Uh, he catches the eye of lots of bigwigs, including Goethe, starts a Bach revival by being basically the first person to perform his music after his death. Ooh. Everyone goes nuts for Mendelssohn. Famous, tours around Europe, gets a job in Leipzig. Have being okay. in charge of the Gewandhaus Orchestra at the tender age of 26. He loves Leipzig, develops its musical life. Woo! Uh, Friedrich Wilhelm IV comes to the Prussian throne in 1840, though, and is like, Berlin should be a massive cultural hub. Come here. Uh, Mendelssohn's like, oh, fine. Goes, writes some tunes there. However, the funds never really materialise, so he's like, peace, and goes back to Leipzig. Mm. Uh, 1843, sets up the Leipzig Conservatory. Um, focused on traditional and musically conservative training. Mm. Uh, generally pretty highly strong guy throughout his life. Insanely hard worker. Five seconds. Um, he was a little bit erratic and stressy. Died Three, of a series two, of strokes. One. After a very stressful tour of England. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. Okay, interesting. So, uh, you know, uh, on the opposite side of the, the coin to Berlioz, he seems like fairly normal, that he had a fairly, like, normal life. Kind of. So he was a very much a traditionalist in the way that Berlioz was not. So Berlioz was in the way that lots of composers are about like breaking the mould and trying new stuff right. and new forms and new ways of expression. Right. Whereas Mendelssohn, interestingly, was very much a traditionalist and was about sort of preserving music that had already been written. Like Bach. E.G. Bach. Right. So, um, I mean, this is the main... Uh, even if this was the only thing he ever did, I yeah. would still love Mendelssohn. Oh he was the guy who basically kick-started the interest in Bach That's all around Europe. so interesting. How long had Bach been dead at that point? So Bach died in 1750. So he'd been dead like sort of 60, 70-ish well, And no one had really... Outside of Leipzig, no one had played that his music. That is so interesting. I had no and idea. even in Leipzig, where he was the big dog, barely played at all, basically. <gasps> which seems crazy, that right? That does seem ridiculous. So uh, Mendelssohn got his hands on a copy of the St. Matthew Passion that, oh, his, yes. uh, that his grandma had given to him. That was just sort of this old dusty copy. And he was like, this is obviously amazing. Yeah. And so because he was sort of this young upstart and was getting loads of praise from all over the place, mm. he was like, well, I've got enough sort of cultural cachet that I can put on this as a... Put this on as a big concert yeah and everyone's like oh this uh this bach fella's pretty good <laughs> and everyone fell in love with Gosh, bach because I of mendelssohn no, no yeah idea. yeah he was basically totally out of favor cool so even if even if he'd only ever done that in his whole life i'd still love <laughs> mendelssohn obviously of course you would but yeah so as i mentioned he was very much about preserving and revitalizing older music mm -hmm. so he was not a fan of berlioz and people of his ilk yes. so i found a couple of lovely quotes that oh, mendelssohn God, had to say please about uh, berlioz's work so with all his efforts to go stark mad he never once succeeds which is a sick button so he's like oh berlioz you're trying to be all cool and edgy but you're not me that's kind of true though isn't it but about Berlioz personally, he called him a friendly, quiet, meditative person. Wow, okay. <laughs> sort of cognitive dissonance there. Just feeling two bit. very different things. Yeah, I'm sure he'd, they liked each other personally. Yeah. And um, I, I found some quotes actually that Berlioz about Mendelssohn, he sort of had a similar view, but the other way around. Oh, right. So he said that Mendelssohn studied the music of the dead too closely. Which, yeah. from Berlioz's yeah. perspective, I get it. Probably but true. Mendelssohn was very backwards-looking, mm. and so this conservatory that he set up in Leipzig, which still today is called something like the Mendelssohn School of Music, something like that, is known for being, you know, relatively conservative in their tastes. So small C conservative, obviously, in yeah. terms of looking backwards and preserving the traditions Got of it. classical music yeah. rather than 
going Being nuts crazy. with like yeah. <laughs> extended techniques and contemporary music and yeah. all that jazz. Okay. So with all that in mind, yeah. we're going to go on to talk about some of his pieces. So first piece I want to talk about is a piece that I really, really love, and that is his violin concerto. Okay. Do you know it? Yes. <laughs> Good. Mm. You should, because uh, it's a pretty staple piece for violin students. And if you've ever spent basically any time around any violinist ever, <laughs> you'll have heard them playing at least the opening phrase to this concerto. It's definitely like the first concerto that lots of violin students learn, I think. Yeah, yeah. However, it's sort of deceptively easy from that uh, opening phrase. So it's not a sort of like, my first violin concerto. Yeah. It's not one of those. <laughs> it's it's considered to be like one of the, the biggest violin concertos. Certainly the four famous German ones are Bruch, Beethoven, Brahms say, yeah. and Mendelssohn. So Bruch is also another one that people play first, I yeah, feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Snowballs. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, lots of violinists, so including people like Josh Bell, so really top dog violinist, mm. considers to be more or less the perfect violin concerto. Yeah. Uh, because it's got pretty much everything in it. So it's got this real virtuosity throughout it. It's got loads of lyrical passages, uh, bits where the violin is in charge and leads it, bit where the violin accompanies the orchestra, lots of technical proficiency, a real emotional mm. core to it. Mm -hmm. I think what my favourite bit about it is its immediacy, really. So there's no long intro or anything you the music starts and then the violin's straight in there nice. with this really recognizable tune that then gets picked up by the orchestra later yeah i find it a very sort of like accessible immediate piece that's what i like, like we love it. an accessible piece around these parts don't we oh we do i'm excited so which movement are we hearing we're listening well funny you should ask about oh. the movements let's talk about that a bit afterwards <laughs> but for now let's have a listen to the opening of it goodness like that grabs you <laughs> it does it definitely grabs you and it's this weird mixture of um sounding really difficult but really easy like the yeah. violinists that play it are usually incredibly talented sure. all the ones that are recorded anyway and they make it sound so effortless but if you actually watch them doing it they're jumping everywhere mm. and um you know i think it's so it's that the so the piece is an e minor which is sort of technically a relatively uncomplicated key to play and there's not loads of sharps and flats or anything right. and the way that that opening melody is constructed is it's i mean not entirely but largely around the e minor triad mm. so it's sort of you know it's arpeggios but with a bit of extra stuff in it so mm. it's a very i think it's an easily followable melody, which is right, yeah. what makes it, I think, sound simpler than it actually is. Right. And what really great violinists, I guess, as you say, are able to uh, transmit. Mm. That it's this Smashing sort of... It. Yeah. It's, it's simple in its complexity. Oh, shut it's, up. Shut up, Chris. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so this took him about six years to write. So he started in 1838. Oh I know, he finished in 1844. Mm. Uh, he was a massive reviser of his own work, basically. He went back Ooh, and he was very yeah. pedantic, yeah. as Berlioz hated. Mm -hmm. And went back and was like, well, maybe I'll just tweak this bit and do this and do that. Uh, 
To go back to what you're asking about the movements, so that was the technically the first movement. However, in this piece, as with lots of his symphonies, actually, Mendelssohn decided he didn't want to have any pause between the movements. Oh, okay. He wanted the movements, all three movements of the, of the concerto, just to flow into each other. Okay. And this was because he was a bit of an old fart and, like, traditionalist. Okay. And he really hated audiences clapping in the middle of pieces. Right, okay, yeah. And so that's why he got the piece just, like, flow into itself until the end. Yes. So it wouldn't be interrupted by the bloody audience. But, I mean, the audience aren't meant to clap, are they? Well, that tradition we have now is largely in part due to Mendelssohn. Because no way. He, he insisted on audiences only clapping once all the movements are over at the end of the piece. So he sort of forced them into it by right. writing pieces like that. Oh my god. But pre Mendelssohn, it was sort of like you can clap where you want if you like to piece. Shout, clap. Do yeah, whatever you want. Do yeah. So wow. if you've ever felt like a fool uh, by clapping in the wrong places at a classical concert, as I have on yeah. more than one occasion, <laughs> yeah. uh, blame Mendelssohn. I think you should be able to clap wherever you want. But Mendelssohn decided, Agreed. no, we can only clap at the end. So before we continue, we just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been supporting us on Patreon. We really appreciate your support, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about how you can support us, please go to www.patreon.com patreon.com forward slash that classical podcast absolutely and if you do go there and decide to become a patron there's so many things that you get uh so we are offering you exclusive behind the scenes footage including video you see our faces uh there's a blooper reel with all the stuff that was too hot to include in the podcast uh there's merchandise that you can only get from there nowhere else in the world and there is a patron only exclusive episode of the podcast Mm. not only that we'll read your names out on the show just like this Josh Kaczynski Marcin Navrotsky Sega Jathani Stephen N.T. Kashap Rob Monk Courtney Doman Wyndham Fafet G.D. Bridget Huey George Koshi and Gretchen Allen Thank, Thank you. you so much <laughs> Are you ready for a tone poem? Yes! <laughs> I love a tone poem. You know I do. I'm I know you love tone a tone poems. Uh, so this is the Hebrides Overture. Yes. A.K.A. Fingal's Cave. So it's called an overture, but it's not an overture really because it's not the overture to an opera or a play or anything. I get you. Yeah. It's just a standalone piece. Right. Hence why it's more of a tone poem. Right. So the overture is meant in more of a romantic sense, capital R romantic, where it's not really attached to something and that's okay. the overture in this sort of form like a concert overture mm. began to be developed throughout the romantic period okay and this to be honest this piece is about as romantic as Mendelssohn ever gets um i.e. on a relatively superficial level <laughs> okay because he was such a sort of you know backwards looking composer where he's like tradition um tradition. I know. <laughs> fiddler on the roof Fiddler. we got it we nice. got it so he wasn't all about the crazy cult of the individual that lots of other romantic literature and art was all about. So, this piece, which he originally called The Lonely Island Overture, Andy Sandberg was not featured anywhere, though. (laughs) (laughs) So, Felix was a regular visitor to the UK and specifically to Scotland, uh, including the Hebrides. Right. So, he went on a boat trip 
round some of the Hebrides. I'm on a boat. And he was on a boat. <laughs> ah, it all Very makes good. sense. And then he, on one of these trips, saw this cave called Fingal's Cave, which is known because it's this really deep, cavernous cavern. You get it. That makes the noise of the waves rumble really loudly and it can be heard from miles away. And it's all very dramatic. Yes. So he was in regular written correspondence with his older sister, Fanny Mendelssohn, who, as we've spoken about previously, was also a well-known composer. But never as big as him because of sexism. Basically, so, yeah. by all accounts, she was like a much better musician yeah, than him. Yeah, she was so good she at the piano. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, but her, wasn't her dad like, no, you must marry and bear many yeah, sons? Yeah, yeah. And she was like, okay. Was like, all right, yeah. cool, I'm disenfranchised. But then she published loads of things under Felix's name, right? Well remembered. Thank very you very much. Well, I was Sorry, that in itself was really patronising <laughs> and sexist. <laughs> I'll just go off and bear many sons now, no worries. All right, perfect. Uh, So he first scribbled down this idea that he had uh, for this Hebrides Overture on a postcard, which he wrote to Fanny. And as I mentioned previously, he was a big reviser of his works. So as well as changing the name, so from Hebrides Overture to Lonely Island to Fingal's Cave, uh, he also changed the music. And in another letter that he wrote to Fanny, uh, he talked about his own work. He was like, the middle part is very stupid and it savours more of counterpoint than of oil and seagulls and dead fish. And it ought to be the very reverse. So he extensively reworked the middle section because he felt that it was... Yeah, too stuffy and formal, which is really weird for him because he wants it to be more sort of like earthy and bleak and... That's ah. awesome. I like that. Yeah, that's very good. Right, now let's have a listen and see if you can hear some rumbling waves and dead oily fish. interesting i just had to listen again to that when we when we listened to it just now um i feel like composers often uh, make the sea sound quite similar in every piece about the sea ah. do you know what i mean they're like like an up and down wave like that's a common theme in things anything about the sea like it reminded me of the isle of the dead yeah right yeah a little bit there's only so many things you need to make it sound like the sea but no i mean epic and awesome and beautiful um yeah love it so yeah it's interesting that you're saying that it sounds like what lots of other composers do so uh as i mentioned that no no no, but it's (laughs) that's actually related to the point i was about to make so felix uh as we mentioned was sort of on the tail end of the classical period which i think is sort of usually agreed to have ended around like 1820 so he was you know mainly writing in the 1830s early 1840s Mm. it was like just on the tail end of that uh, and so because that was a fairly sort of, as mentioned, rule-abiding traditional composer who was very much on board with traditional rules of counterpoint mm. and how to construct uh, harmony and melodies. Mm. However, he does something a bit different here, which is, because as I said, this is probably one of his more romantic pieces. So the chords underneath the opening 
change in quite unexpected ways. We have the... You've got that melody over the top. Mm. Then underneath, you've got chords which rise by a minor third each time. So a third, as we've mentioned before, is three notes of the scale. Mm. And in sort of typical harmony, you usually jump to like chord four or chord five or maybe chord six or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's rare to jump to chord three, especially as a minor third. And this is the kind of thing that now I think lots of film composers use for like opening up music so that sort of impression that he gives us by this music rising by this sort of slightly unusual interval sort of yeah makes you feel like you're rowing out onto a vista and then you see a big cave open up is that is that what you mean by opening up music is that the technical term of what Hans Zimmer does I wouldn't say it's a technical term but it's what's opening up music can you paint me a picture in a film it's the kind of film where they like they turn around a corner and, and they, da, 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 they da, see the dinosaurs. Da, da, T-Rex run. Yeah. Um, yeah, or when they first see the promised land. It's that sort of thing of like a vista <laughs> opening up. Look, I'm using generic <laughs> filmic scenes, Sorry, not yeah. actual films. Uh, this is actually also to my ears anyway similar to what Brahms did later so we've spoken in a previous episode about Brahms's third symphony that he wrote in 1883 mm. uh, where he goes from F major to A and then F to A flat so again oh. these jumps mm. of thirds right uh, which sound really impactful because they're unusual they're not what we commonly hear in orchestral writing like this right. And it again has that effect of really just sort of lifting the piece up if you just go up by a minor third. I'm aware that I'm getting into like slightly nerdish territory here. No, no, it's I just great. thought it was interesting. I mean, yeah, it's a real technical way of looking at opening up music, so that's great. <laughs> a very technical way of looking up this technical thing that I've just made up the name for. But anyway, that's why I particularly like uh, the Hebrides, because on the surface it's like it sounds like caves and water. Yeah, it does. But then under that, there's all sorts of clever stuff that uh, Mendelssohn's doing that he did because he was this very technically accomplished composer. Clever boy. Very clever boy. Well done, Mendelssohn. So what should we listen to if we want to hear more? Well, what shouldn't you listen to? That's the real question. Okay. Uh, And the answer is not very much. You should listen to all of it. So he was a great symphonist as well. So the two most famous ones he wrote, he had an Italian symphony and a Scottish symphony. They were nicknamed that. They're great. Midsummer Night's Dream. He wrote uh, incidental music to that. He wrote that when he was like 17. Incredible. Insane. Yeah. 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 He wrote that when he was 17. And then he came back 10 years later and finished it. Isn't and that inspirational? That's utterly bonkers yeah. that he did that. Yeah. And so that includes the famous wedding march, of course, if you right, know that. What else is good? Um, Songs Without Words. That's oh, a series lovely. of solo piano yeah, pieces. Yeah, really nice. Just really beautiful. Mm. Yeah, so for all of his, you know, relatively backwards looking behaviour, he actually was a very good composer. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and, you know, it doesn't... The lesson from Mendelssohn oh, no, is uh, don't think outside the box. Never be creative and you'll end up being remembered forever. And it doesn't matter if you're less good at music than your siblings. As long as you're a man. Is that the lesson we're taking from this? Yes. That Classical Podcast. So that 
Ladies and gents, was our episode on Felix, Felix Bendelson and Hector Berlioz, Crazy Hect. Um, <laughs> um, I, I love Hect as hect, an abbreviation. I, I panicked, I don't know. Anyway, I hope you really enjoyed it. And um, please like, let us know, you know your favourite pieces by those composers. We Absolutely, really want to yeah. know. We want to expand our, um, our minds as well. And how can they let us know, Kelly? Well, you can find us on the internet. You can go to, first of all, we're on Twitter. We're at that classical on twitter and you can find us on instagram at that classical insta you can go along to facebook you can just type that classical podcast into facebook if you want to Uh, we also have a website if that's more your thing uh com. fabulous stuff and once you've looked at us all over there yeah uh, if you haven't already (laughs) why not head over to itunes and maybe give us a review we'd love that it uh, helps us out a lot and we love hearing from you and what you think that'd be fabulous otherwise we'll see you next time see ya bye Bye. Bye.